0: topics in this episode are fairly simple, even basic, but I'd like to tackle them from a different perspective. The information in a computer is represented in binary form. For them, the bit is the basic unit of this information. Bits are binary, and binary means that there can only be two states. Or it's the first state, or it's the second one, nothing else. And the CPU has some built-in commands to manipulate a fixed set of those bits. The set of bits with a fixed size for a processor that this processor is designed to handle at a time is called a word. This varies between different processors. And because of how tied and low level binary operations are, they are operation directly supported by the CPU, they are faster than higher level abstractions and consume less memory space. For this reason, it sometimes is chosen at the sake of clarity by some programmers as a data structure. So today we're going to discuss some topics related to words and some usages of bitwise operations and Unix. I'm Vinam and you're listening to the Nixers Podcast. In today's world, we rarely have to deal with binary operations, unless we deal with embedded system or we deliberately want to do it. Everything has been abstracted layers over layers over layers. We've inherited all those fancy wrappers, but under them lies the work of multiple developers who created them. But it's not wrappers everywhere, there are many places at the user level where bits are still relevant. Bits can be manipulated in most programming languages, for instance, and you can even do that in shell scripts. The languages offer some, but not all, interfaces to those operations that are one-to-one correspondent to the CPU instructions. For example, the C language allows the shifting operation, which is like the name implies shifting the bits inside of a word. Those operations, called bitwise, are fairly standard, and as you might expect, with years of accumulated knowledge, some structures created themselves around bit manipulation. Those structures are the ones used to create the abstraction layers we currently have, and we can still use them for the purpose of efficiency if we want to. I've linked in the show notes two websites which regroup some of those tips and structures created over time for optimizing common procedures using bitwise operations. But there's a hick here. There's something special that we need to take in consideration. In some languages, these optimizations are not relevant anymore. They might already be implemented and optimized in the core library of the language, like C for instance, or the compiler might know better than you how to optimize the software you are writing. Or the opposite, the compiler might modify your optimization at compile time and render it useless. Nevertheless, having a look at how certain things can be done more efficiently and stored using bit-like structures is very very interesting. A CPU does operations on words. That word, as we said, is a fixed number of bits. Today, most computers are 32 bits or 64 bits words. You might have heard of the deprecation of 32-bit machines and wondered why this was. That stems from the way some people thought of storing some values on the long run over a long period of time. Values that keep a counter and some data type that is tied to a word size, which is fixed and is bound to run out of space on the long run. The most talked about instance of this though there are many other examples, is the UNIX timestamp, which is represented by a single signed integer, counting the number of seconds since Thursday, 1st January 1970, and UTC. Now, I won't go into the details, but that value cannot be larger than the word size, and thus, as with any counter, it'll keep incrementing. The issue is that, in a 32-bit machine, all the bits of the integer counter will become ones. the 19th of January 2038. And after that, the behavior is unexpected and may vary. But you don't have to wait until 2038 to test what happens when an integer overflows. And yes, that's the term used to say that all the bits have been filled in an integer. You can already test this with a simple scripts. And now we can't change the past and we have to move on. And maybe choosing an integer wasn't the best way to represent time. Maybe it was, but there's nothing to do about it now. One still great relevant usage of bits to represent a concept is the way file permission is set on Unix-like systems. File permission is a way to specify or control access rights to files. Generally speaking, there are two main ways to do this these days, the classical or t- traditional modes and the ACL, access control list. ACL is a superset of the classic UNIX files modes that allows more fine-grained configurations. So how does the permission on files work? There are only three different types of permissions on UNIX, and on those three different types can be assigned three different classes of users. The three types of permissions are read, write, and execute. Because there are only three of them, you can easily represent them by a set of three bits that are either on or off for the specified permission. And that's how it's implemented. The first bit is for read, second for write, and third for execute. The three classes we talked about are like groups that can be assigned a different set of those three bits. They are the owner class, the group class, and the other class. And so you can represent the 3 bit sets of the 3 classes in the same order, and that gives you a big set of 9 bits that you can read. Those bit sets are also represented in octal or decimal notation for every class. And here it doesn't matter, because the numbers are always less than 10, so decimal and octal will give the same value. So, for example 777 permission means that all the classes get all the privileges on the file and if you're having difficulty with the representation you can always go back to the binary to octal conversion chart you obviously can also get back the file permission in a more human readable form a symbolic notation if you prefer to let's also mention that there are three more modes or bits that can be turned on in the file the exact same way the set user id bit the set group ID and the sticky mode. This way of activating and deactivating modes is clean and elegant and fits well. So the relevant man pages are chmod, chfn, new group, chon, chgrp, change group file permissions example has given us an overview of how a group of bits is a great way to represent configurations or settings or modes or anything that are either on or off. Isn't that what bits are for anyway? Well, this type of bit-like structure is also used to configure file attributes that are specific to the file system in use. BSD-like systems have a ch-flag command to change those attributes, while Linux system running on ext file systems have a chattr command and ls attribute command. Many other Unix-like systems have the equivalence. Overall, it works the same way as with permission bits, you either set an option available on or off on the file. For instance, you could tell the file systems that a file is immutable on Xt4 by running ch-attribute-i file. Refer to the manual page of the command used to change the attributes for the list of all the attributes you can change. However, it's not all rainbows and butterflies. Bits are not very flexible and are limited to either setting something on or off, and that is the reason why the ACL access control list was created and is now part of POSIX. It lets you specify permission for a specific user for example, which wouldn't be possible with just bits. Check the getfacl and setfacl man page or any of the links in the show notes for more information on that. Okay, so we can represent things by bits, it's cool and compact. That also means we can apply some of those bitwise operations we talked about on those bits. Let's discuss one of them in particular, masking. Masking bits is the process of taking a group of bits and another group of bits as a mask and use it in a single operation to set some bits of the first group to either on or off. For instance, you can do an OR operation and use a mask to set the bits to 1, or use an AND operation to set those bits to 0. The AND mask can also be used to query the status of some bits and it'll only return bits with the value of 1 if both are 1's. Overall, that's a nice bitwise operation where you metaphorically overlap a group of bits over another to get the result you need from it. A sort of query. One of the applications of masking in unix is UMask. Which appeared first in the version 8 of Unix. UMask is a system call with a symmetrical command line program or built-in shell command to manipulate a mask that controls what file permissions will be set for a newly created file. It also goes by the name of File Mode Creation Mask. The mask is applied over the default permission mode and the operation used between them is the negation. So it's equivalent to an end operation between the default permission and the negation of the mask. In simple terms, it means that whatever you enable in the mask will be disabled as a permission. So for example, the default permission for files is usually 666. Then when applying a mask of 000, it will leave it as 666. But applying a mask of 006 will make creation of file have the permission of 660. The default permission for directories is usually 777. Now, the question that arises is how to set the default file permission for a certain disk, or a certain files, or for certain whatever. The answer is not as straightforward as it might seem. It depends on multiple small factors all around the systems. When creating a new user, you can specify the initial permission of the home directory the user will reside in. There are a bunch of configuration files like etclogins.dev and adduser.conf that are checked for that, and you might specify it on the command line when calling adduser or useradd comments. An user for example, you have the dear mode value to set the permission of the home directory upon creation, and in those files you can also set the default umask applied to those users. But still, this is not entirely related to the umask, it's not even the base. The default permission may also depend on some of the special bits that are set on the file. Those could be the file system-dependent attributes, or the other special ones that we talked about like the sticky bit. For instance, when a directory sticky bit is set, only the file's owner, the directory's owner, or the root user can rename or delete the file. But that actually only affects already created files, so it doesn't have anything to do with the umask. Now let's zoom back a bit. Before even interacting with files, you have to mount the file system that contains those files. And at mount time, you can possibly set the default permission of those files. This is done in many ways, or from the fstab, or from the m tab, or from the command line utility to mount the file system. For instance, you can specify an fstab that the system is mounted only in read-only mode. However, you need to consider that, like the special attributes on a file, the different options that can be set while mounting a file system depends on which file system you are mounting. When mounting a FAT and NTFS, for example, you can specify an fmask, a dmask, and a umask respectively, file mask, directory mask, and umask. But other file systems don't allow that necessarily. Still, that doesn't answer the question of where the default base permission comes from. The real answer is that they are not base permission. It's an illusion. The truth is that those base permission, mostly 666 for files and 777 for directories, are hard coded inside the core standard utilities that make your Unix-like systems. So, running a simple strace on those utilities, like strace touch or as tracing and mkdir, it clearly shows this. It clearly shows a system call that is hard-coded with 666. And 666 being hard-coded in most utilities, even most shells, explains why Unix is so evil. So in some, there's no base, it's just the utilities protecting you. You could create your own programs that let you set the base permif- permission, if you prefer, but that's not very wise. Those values are hard-coded for a reason. They are protecting you from reckless security issues. This is the best default permission policy, the principle of least privilege, your shell is protecting you and it's worth knowing. This episode's topic was relatively petty, nothing too complex, but I thought it was interesting to intertwine all those topics around the concept of bits and words. There certainly are more or many more areas in Unix where words and bitwise operations are used and I'd love to hear about them. You might find more value in the show notes so be sure to check those out and as usual if you find anything interesting to add or anything to correct you can bump the extended thread on the forums and if you want to contribute there is a link in that extended thread where you can find many ways to do so. So cheers! was Venom for the Nixers podcast.